Well, today marks the summer of our uh, the, the start of our summer schedule, and I want to remind you that um, both the service and the sermons will be a little bit shorter for the next couple of months. But I love that we just began in prayer because one of the coolest um, verses in this passage isn't it? Isn't it cool that that God's people appeal to Samuel to pray, and He says, "Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you." And I just want you to know that John and I uh, pray for you by name. Um, and, and we seek to be faithful to that calling. I do believe it would be a sin against the Lord for John and I to fail to pray for you because that's our office. That's the office we occupy. And you might want to just think as we begin, as we begin to dig into this passage, um, what is your sphere that God has given you? So maybe you're a mother. Maybe you're a father. You're called to pray for your children, that they be raised in the knowledge and love of God. I believe it would be a sin against the Lord. You know, when we confess our sins in this service, we say we confess things done and things left undone. Right. If you're a teacher and you're a Christian, you're called to pray for your students. If you're if you're a, a, a governor, if you're if you're um, some kind of political leader, you're called to pray for your city. And we're all called to pray for our city and we're all called to pray for the kids in this church. But there's a special sense where if that's the office you occupy, if that's the sphere of influence you have, you're called to pray. Amen. Amen. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. That's what the prophet Samuel says. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at this passage in 1 Samuel 12. And since the kids are in here with us this morning, I want to start by sharing a story about two of my best childhood friends. And I knew these two guys since elementary school, uh, but we really grew close around seventh grade. And uh, the three of us wrote songs together, we played on the basketball team together, and we hung out so much that sometimes people would call us the three amigos. And uh, even though uh, none of us actually grew up in church, we all somehow ended up in full-time ministry. So that's just a really wild thing now for us to reflect back on, and how did that happen, Lord? Um, But around the 11th grade, my two friends took very different paths. So the first guy had an encounter with the Lord Jesus at a youth retreat, and it transformed his life dramatically for the better. And my second friend, had, his family had recently been abandoned by their father, by the dad. Um, he left town and left them, and it began to change his life dramatically for the worse. Now, I'll return to his story later on, but let me start by telling you about my friend who was the first among my friends... To come to know Jesus and the changes that we started to see in his life. And it started with little things. Like I remember he would always pray before he ate lunch in the cafeteria. He would pause and pray. And I'm like, what's this guy doing over here? And uh, he showed respect for women that we didn't show back then. He avoided using foul language. He started writing songs about Jesus. I actually think it made him more creative, a better songwriter. And sometimes... He would sense God leading him to do things. So, for example, he sensed God calling him to drop the basketball team and to focus his efforts and energies on the advanced choir in our high school, which he had just joined. And even though his music talent was raw, he couldn't read music. It's 11th grade. He couldn't read music. And he was only an average student. He felt like God was calling him to pursue a full vocal scholarship at a very expensive private university. 
And so we all kind of thought, hey, this guy's kind of out of his mind. And people, I remember people used to say, uh, hey, dude, you should, you should really have a contingency plan. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember that he used to say, there's no contingency plan in God's will. Hmm. That's what he used to say to people. So he was the really, he was the first friend I ever had who made a major life decision on what he believed God was calling him to do. And I remember thinking, either this guy's really foolish or he has a lot of faith. Maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> but mostly I admired him for it. And I'm happy to share that the story ended well. During a senior assembly the next year, it was announced in front of the whole assembly that my friend had earned a full ride to that expensive private university. In fact, it was the largest monetary scholarship awarded to any student in our senior class. <laughs> and the cool thing is, the way that his risky faith brought glory to God throughout our school. Because the whole senior class and all the faculty knew, it's not like he was being boasting or braggadocious or anything, but they knew that he sensed that's exactly what God was calling him to do, and God came through. So it glorified God in our midst. But as much as that event inspired me back in the day, I remember thinking about his words years later. He had said that there's no contingency plan in God's will. That caused me to wonder, from a biblical perspective, is that true? And if so, in what sense is it true? These are important questions because I think we've all had times when we've made the wrong decision at some crucial point in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. There's a crucial fork in the road and we're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. Mm -hmm. Whether because of sin or because of ignorance or because of lack of faith. And we need to know, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for God to put our story sort of back on track as we derailed it? Like, if we chose the wrong major in college out of a desire for prestige, right? Or, or if, we, if we sort of quickly took the highest paying job out of blind greed, could God still use our career for his glory? Like, what if we have deep regrets about a bad dating relationship or a marriage or a divorce? Or, or what about if we waited too long to have children, these are things that we commonly have regrets about. What if we can think of a time when we knew God was telling us to do something, but we didn't have the courage and faithfulness to follow through on what he was telling us to do? And maybe we even could see the disastrous consequences for our lives or the lives of others immediately following that. In other words, what if we mess up plan A for our lives? Is there still room in God's economy for plan B? Or even dare we hope that God could somehow maybe rescue plan A? This is really the central theme of our Old Testament reading today. Would you turn there with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 19. And it begins with all of Israel, God's chosen people pleading with the prophet Samuel. They say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God. It's on page 234, by the way. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins. It wouldn't sin a lot, but we've added to all our sins this evil that we've asked for ourselves a king. So 
Here you have a situation where God's people realize that they have spoiled plan A with their own sinfulness. And notice they implicitly understand the connection between sin and death. They don't just think of God as this sort of like cosmic forgiveness machine. Right? Well, it's, he is going to forgive us. It's his job. That uh, tends to be the way that we think about it in 21st century American culture. They understand that God is a just judge who punishes sin and unrighteousness. Just like in Genesis 3, where God's original plan A for humanity was spoiled by Adam and Eve's rebellion and death entered the picture as a result. Here God's people ask Samuel to pray that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins. And specifically it says they sin by asking for themselves a king. Now this doesn't sound so bad until we remember the context. God had led, had led these people out from under an oppressive king in Egypt, from out of, out of Pharaoh's oppression, and brought them to himself as their rightful king. And then, when the kings of the surrounding nations, he had brought them into the land, the kings of the surrounding nations are coming at them, he rescues them time and time again by sending them heroes, by sending them judges to deliver them. So in essence, God was their king, and they knew it, but they rejected God in favor of a human king. In fact, flip back a couple pages to 1 Samuel 8, and here the prophet Samuel is angered by the people's request for a king. He's feeling touchy about this. He's, he's personally offended, and the Lord tells him in verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. In other words, don't take it personal, Samuel. They've been doing this to me for hundreds of years. <laughs> then the Lord says in verse 9, Now then, obey their voice. It's interesting. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And of course, Samuel makes it clear in the chapters that follow that these men, these human kings, will end up oppressing the people of Israel. Actually, the word in 1 Samuel is take. Their MO will be to take from God's people rather than to give and to serve as God would have done. And so sin spoils everything for them. As far as they could see, their own sin had spoiled plan A. So by the time we reach chapter 12, if you want to flip forward again, the people of Israel, they're feeling pretty contrite. They're feeling pretty sorry for what they've done. And then we get a glimpse into the deep mercy of God. What does David say later? A broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. Samuel says to the people in verse 20, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Now at first glance, this sentence doesn't even seem to make sense. In fact, you'll notice that Miriam, who's a really good reader, sort of kind of paused there and kind of stumbled a little bit. Like, hold on, is that what the sentence says? <laughs> Because there's so much grace here that it almost sounds ironic, doesn't it? Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. In other words, 
The Lord knows and sees exactly what you've done, and yet you do not be afraid, need to be afraid, not because it wasn't that bad, but because God is that good. Because God is that merciful. You're right, you've spoiled plan A, Samuel says, but that's not the end of the story. And after confronting them in verse 20, he goes on to exhort them, saying, Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve Him with all your heart. Say, all your heart. All your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things. Say, empty things. Empty things. The Hebrew word here is tohu. And it's the same word that's used in Genesis 1, verse 2, when it describes the uncreated cosmos being without form and void. In other words... It's saying that this idolatry, this sin, this chasing after, after empty things is like the unraveling of God's created order. It's like going back to a time of chaos, but in the moral sense of the word. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are tohu. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of turning away from the Lord for something that seemed like desirable at the time, only to find, off, find out that it didn't really ultimately pay off the way that you hoped it would. Maybe it was okay in the beginning, but it ended up being empty, spiritually vacuous. Maybe some of you are in that situation right now. And sin does this to us. It, it makes us like an addict who, keep, who keeps returning to the same drug for a smaller and smaller payoff, things become hollow, spiritual tohu. And the Lord wants us to know that it's His desire to fill our cup while sin wants to drain us. It's His desire to build us up while the princes of the world desire to tear us down. A little later in verse 24, Samuel repeats the second half of verse 20 almost verbatim. He says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Say, with all your heart. Now notice the emphasis is never for God just on cold obedience. God cares about obedience. Jesus says, actually, those who love me will obey my commands. But He always wants the obedience to come from the heart. God wants His people to serve, verse 20. But He wants it to flow from all of their hearts. God wants His people to be faithful, verse 24. But He wants it to be with all their hearts. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the God of the Bible is radically focused on the heart. Radically focused, like no other religion in the world, past or present, He's not just focused on our actions, but on our motivations, on our affections. He gives the people of Israel Israel outward rituals, right? Like circumcision. But then he commands them to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. Deuteronomy 10. He gives them outward signs of penitence like rending their garments and sitting in dust and ashes. But then he tells them in Joel chapter 2, rend your hearts and not your garments. Mm -hmm. That's what all this is about. It's just a symbol of that. That's what I want. I want your heart. What can you give to the one who has everything? He wants your heart. Do you want a truly radical example of God's focus on the human heart? I encourage you to think deeply on this passage here in 1 Samuel and why the lectionary places it here on the Sunday after Ascension. 
Because the people of Israel had rejected God's perfect kingship in favor of a flawed human king. And the incredible thing is that for some reason, God grants their request. Remember he said to Samuel, listen to them. Do what they're asking. Obey their voice. Now why? Why would God obey them? Why would God allow them to do this thing that is contrary to his will? Did God lack the power to stop them? Of course not. But for some reason, just as he did in the Garden of Eden, God allows them this choice and he gives them over to the consequences of that choice. So again, we might ask why. And I think a good answer could be summarized by T.S. Eliot, the renowned modernist poet who actually became a Christian later on in life. In fact, uh, T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis uh, helped um, create a translation of the Psalms that we still use in our Anglican prayer book. And, um, but T.S. Eliot, one of my favorite quotes, he put it this way. He said, to do the right thing for the wrong reason is treason. Amen. Isn't that good? <laughs> to do the right thing for the wrong reason is treason. Now let's consider that in the context of 1 Samuel. Yes, God had rescued Israel from Pharaoh and wanted to be their king. Yes, it was treason for Israel to chase after other gods. It was spiritual tohu. And yes, God could have forced Israel to obey him with an iron fist. This kind of religion that he's trying to avoid is treasonous religion because they wouldn't have been obeying him from the heart. As Jesus put it, it's silly to worry about cleaning the outside of the cup and to neglect cleaning the inside. Amen? That was the treason of the Pharisees who made a show of obeying the law. That was the treason of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right, who obeyed his dad out of a sense of duty but not love. This kind of religion is treasonous and contrary to the way of God who desires all men to know him and obey him freely as a love offering from the heart. That's his intention for your life. If you want to know, if you're here today and you're like, I don't know that much about Christianity, what, what's God trying to do with my life? What's he up to? What's he going to do if I get myself into the thick of this? He wants you to obey him and love him from your heart. That's why Jesus calls love for God the greatest commandment. That's why in the Middle Ages, the church used to distinguish between attrition, which is sorrow over our sin because of a fear of punishment, and contrition, which is sorrow over our sins because of our love for God, because we had transgressed a relationship that's become sacred to us, which, of course, was the highest form. I think there's probably a lesson here for parents, don't you think? I'm a parent. And I think it's important for us to know that the goal is not simply for our children to display outward conformity to our rules simply because we enforce them with an iron fist. If that was the height of wisdom, God could have done it that way. But God's purpose has always been to use discipline. And the Lord wants us to use discipline, parents. Amen? Amen as a means of cultivating a heart of loving obedience that springs from the inside out. I want to ask you, have you ever truly offered your heart to the Lord? 
presented it to him, said, you can have my heart, you can have all my mind, you can have all my soul. Friends, it's really the only wise and safe thing that you can do with your heart. You're the steward of your heart. And human kings and princes will let you down. The idols of this world will let you down. But it's always safe to be vulnerable to God. He knows everything you did anyway. His love is perfect. His desire is to build us up. His desire is to fill our cup. I mentioned at the beginning that I wanted to tell you the story of two of my high school buddies. So now I want to tell you about the second guy. And as I mentioned... His family had recently been abandoned by his earthly father, and this had disastrous consequences in his life. In 11th grade, he dropped out of school. He dropped out of our music group. He was prone to fits of anger. He began drinking heavily, womanizing, and looking for any opportunity to fill the void that he felt in the inside. And if there was, an ev- if there was ever a young man who had seemingly abandoned plan A for his life, it was this guy. Was there any contingency plan? Was there any hope of redemption for his story? The answer was and is, in the fully biblical sense, yes. Around the age of 19, he had one of the most dramatic conversions to Christianity I've ever witnessed to this day. He gave up alcohol overnight. He moved out of his girlfriend's house, out of this codependent relationship he'd been in. He sought to make amends with any women he had wronged. And despite his learning disabilities, he basically taught himself to read by reading the Bible a whole lot. He earned his GED, worked hard to enter a Bible college. And years later, he would become a youth pastor that led dozens of troubled youth to Christ. He's married now. He's faithful to his wife. He's a loving father to two boys. I recently got to spend a couple days with this guy. And perhaps the most amazing thing of all is the way that God's fatherly love has healed his deep-seated insecurities. I mean, have you ever noticed that when you meet somebody that comes from a broken family, they often wear that brokenness on their sleeve in some way? It's like a battle scar, right? Well, that's totally what this guy used to seem like. I'm telling you, I just spent like two or three days with him and I'm searching him and I'm looking at his face and I'm hearing his comments about things. And I'm like, this guy has the countenance of a well-loved man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This guy has the countenance of a man who's been healed, who is whole because of the love of God. I'm just so proud to know him. So proud to be his friend. So proud to have seen this story come to fruition. Because brothers and sisters, that's the kind of healing and redemption that's available to all people through the God we meet here in 1 Samuel 12. We all have wounds and insecurities, don't we? And this is the kind of inside-the-cup transformation. It often takes longer, right, than walking away from alcohol and immoral relationships. But it's available to all of us through God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We all at times have made terrible decisions. The prophet says each of us have turned to our own way. But God in his sovereignty can redeem our stories. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Mm -hmm. Opportunity for what, he asked? To show his power, the power of his grace now displayed 
to the praise of His glory. But there's another reason, and before I close, there's another reason why God allowed Israel to have a human king. Another opportunity He seized for the praise of His glory. Today, as I mentioned, is the Sunday after the Ascension, the day in the church calendar where we celebrate King Jesus' glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father. And there's a reason why 1 Samuel 12 is a lectionary reading on this day. So follow me with this, guys. Because God, in His divine foreknowledge and sovereignty, is just really, really smart. <laughs> like beyond anything that we can fathom. Because later on in this same story, in this same narrative, in 2 Samuel verse 7, God makes this mysterious promise to Israel's most famous king, to King David. And the Lord promises that a son of David, who will also somehow, and this is kind of incepted like right in the middle of this, somehow be God's son, will rule over God's people forever and ever. This is called the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. As 2 Samuel 7.16 says, Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, I think it's fair to ask, how could a mortal man, even if he is the descendant of a great man like David, how could a mortal man reign forever? What could this mean? And God's people would spend the next thousand years pondering that question in their heart. And in the fullness of time, God would send His only divine Son, a descendant of David according to the flesh, to be the Messiah, the long-awaited King. And when Jesus arose from the dead on that third day and ascended into heaven 40 days after that, all of this... All of this promise and more was accomplished because he not only answered the people's request for a human king, but also because Jesus is both God and man, somehow God fulfilled his original purpose to establish his own kingship over all the peoples of the earth. Isn't that crazy? If you ask me whether God had all this in mind back in 1 Samuel 12, I'll tell you, he had it in mind long before that. Who do you think we're dealing with? I said earlier that sin spoils everything, but that's only true in a limited way. Because you can't truly spoil the plan of a God so powerful and so wise as the Lord our God. In His sovereignty and foreknowledge, He's able to wrap our own sinful mistakes into the tapestry of His own glorious plan A. He did it in the Garden of Eden, figuring out a way to defeat sin and death through the second Adam. And he did it through Israel's fallen and broken monarchy, sending his long-awaited Messiah to unify all things under the kingdom of God. So in a sense, my first friend was correct. There's no contingency plan in God's will. In the end, there's just God's plan. And as the scriptures say, none can stay his hand. But in another sense... If sin has seemingly spoiled plan A, and we've all probably had that experience, spoiled plan A for us, we need not despair. As the story of my second friend makes clear, if we will only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all our heart, God in His merciful wisdom is able to rescue us in completely unexpected ways and set our story back on track with His story. And for His glory.
Amen. Amen. Amen.